Welcome to the Access Church Podcast. We exist to bring you life-changing and life-giving content to help you on your lifelong journey with Jesus. To learn more about who we are, visit accesschurch.com. That's access spelled A-X-E-S-S. Let's jump right into it. Hey, if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 13 today. Um, Just a recap, we've been in this series called Messy Beginnings, which is about learning how to be a spirit-led church. And sometimes that process can be a little uncomfortable as we learn how to follow the spirit together. You know, some people can be really good at doing things on their own, but they're really bad in a team setting. We see this all the time in the corporate world where someone's really efficient on their own, but then they get added to a team and they don't know how to be a part of a team. They have to learn how to be a part of a team and how to communicate and work and and, and recognize their own weaknesses so someone else's strengths can fill in for that weakness. And the same is true here in the body of Christ. Sometimes we can get really good at our own relationship with God, our own communion with God, our own being led by the Spirit. But then we get into the body of Christ, we realize, hey, we need to learn how to do this all together because he's called us to be a body, a productive body in the name of Christ. And so that's why sometimes it can be messy, but look, it is a good work. It is a good endeavor endeavor to go on as we seek to be led by the Spirit. So we're going to pick up. We spent a lot of time in, in 1 Corinthians because that's where a lot of Paul's work on uh, the, the church as a body being led by the Spirit and some of the messiness that can come along with that. And so we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians uh, 13 today. But I want to give you a little background on what was happening in Corinth. There was a lot of uh, disunity and there was a lot of confusion and division that was going on. And something that I think is pretty uh, enlightening to understand about the Corinthians is that they had something called an overrealized eschatology. So eschatology is a really fancy word for just speaking of the, the end, the end times. Not just the events of the end times, but when Jesus comes back, the, the, the second returning of Christ where he makes all things right, where he ushers in the new creation. That's what eschatology is about, is just our theology about the end times. And the Corinthians, they had an overrealized eschatology because they believed that something that is going to happen had already happened. So it was overrealized. And they thought they were actually already living in a measure of the new creation, already living in a measure of the restoration of the new creation. And part of this was because. They could speak, and what Paul refers to, he calls it the tongues of angels. So because they could speak in the tongues of angels, they believed that they may have already been in a heaven-like reality because they could speak in the language of angels. So this probably fed into this over-realized eschatology. And then, if you also, uh, you'll notice in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has to tackle this thing that for us is pretty basic. It's the foundation of our faith, as Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15. But they questioned if there would be a resurrection. Now, why would they question if there would be a resurrection of the dead? Because they thought it already happened. That's why, because they had this overrealized eschatology. 
They thought they were already in this new creation-like state. So Paul had to, had to tackle that part of it as well. And so what they were doing is, amongst themselves, they were boasting of their levels of spirituality because of what they were able to do, because they were able to speak in the tongues of, uh, of angels or of heaven or because they had prophetic gifts. So they were being very boastful with one another about what they were able to do and what spiritual gifts they had, and it led to a lot of division. And it actually created—now, this is—, this is wild to think of because the gifts of the spirit are they are good things they are of god but the corinthians somehow managed to create an atmosphere where even the good things the gifts of the spirit were actually causing harm and division not the gifts themselves but their use of the gifts were causing harm and division and paul he never says you will never find it in there. He never says to stop using or desiring the gifts of the Spirit. This is never his answer to the problem. He doesn't say, let's just shut this thing down. That's typically what we do. Let's just shut it down. If we can't handle it, we're just not going to do it. No, Paul's saying, no, these are good things, but we need to change the way that you are operating with the gifts of the Spirit. We need to change the atmosphere that's been created for the gifts to operate in. And so we pick up in 1 Corinthians, the last verse of 12, and then we'll jump into uh, 13. But uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 31, Paul says uh, this to them. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. Would you just say with me, the most excellent way. If Paul says this is the most excellent way, then I'm going to believe this is the most excellent way. All right? So Paul's saying, let me show you how to create an atmosphere where the gifts of the Spirit are productive and not harmful. So picking up in verse 1 in chapter 13, Paul puts himself in the place of the speaker. He puts, himself, he puts himself in the place of the Corinthians, as if they would say this. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Paul speaks, as I mentioned, in the first person and puts himself in the shoes of someone like a Corinthian would actually say. Now, could you imagine possessing all of this, all the things that Paul lists off? Could you imagine... You have the gift of speaking in tongues, of prophecy. He says, faith that can move mountains. And then he goes on to add, interestingly enough, he talks about giving to the poor. And then he talks about martyrdom. And he says, in all of these things, if you don't have love, it's meaningless. It doesn't do anything for anyone. It's nullified without love. See, Paul was doing something here, and I think this is an interesting lens to view what was happening in Corinth through. Paul was shifting their perspective on spirituality. He was shifting their perspective on spirituality. He was saying, without love, 
You are actually of the utmost, you are of the most unspiritual nature. Because the Corinthians thought, because I can do all these things, they thought they were the peak of spirituality. They thought they were the picture of spirituality. But Paul comes in and says, guys, if you don't have love, you're actually the most unspiritual that you can be. You're the farthest from any kind of spirituality that you can be if you do not operate in love. The very thing you think you possess is actually the very thing that you lack. Could you imagine being in that place? You're so confident you have something, and then Paul comes in and goes, the thing you think you have, you're the farthest from it. You're the farthest from it. You know, we live in a world today that prizes what is called spirituality. People want to be spiritual. They want to connect with higher powers. They want to understand their purpose in life, you know, because we're wired to be that way. God put an innate sense and desire in you to connect with something greater than you. That's wired into every human being, which is why people want to be spiritual, because that's how God wired them. He wired them to want to know why they were created, to want to know their purpose. He wired them to seek something greater than themselves. But unfortunately, it turns into a warped spirituality instead of a biblical spirituality. In my perspective, I think spirituality today has turned into what I would call a build-a-bear approach to connecting with higher powers. It's I'm going to take all the pieces that I want and create my own little spiritual connection, however that looks. I might worship this God or have this practice or meditate this way and do it to this album and do it whatever. And it's like Build-A-Bear. You just go in and create it until you have your own little idea of what spirituality is for you. But like sheep without a shepherd, people are using any means they can think of to connect with themselves and higher powers on a deep spiritual level, but they're doing it in the wrong direction. I just Googled uh, spirituality just to see what Google would say, and the definition that it came up with is the quality of being concerned with the human spirit or soul as opposed to material or physical things. Now I want to point out a huge problem with that definition right there. Spirituality is all inward. It's focused inward. And when I say say spirituality, I'm talking about more like new age, modern day spirituality. It says the quality of being concerned with the human spirit or soul. So it goes inward to find answers. It goes inward to connect. It goes inward to find purpose. Spirituality in this light is anti-gospel, and it's incompatible with the life of Christ. New Age spirituality takes good things like prayer, meditation, and the desire to find your purpose in life, and it makes it introspective, which leads to being consumed with yourself. Does that not sound anti-gospel? Jesus says to die to yourself, to be born again. And to be consumed with the life of Christ. 
But modern day spirituality says, be consumed with yourself. Because they believe that's where you will find your answers. The question then becomes, who gets to define what it means to be spiritual? Who gets to define what it means to be spiritual? Well, Paul points them and us to Jesus. And he points to a specific form and time of Jesus' life, which was Jesus and him crucified. This is where Paul points them. Because this is the first point I want to give you today. Sacrificial love is the mark of true spirituality. Sacrificial love is the mark of true spirituality. This is Jesus himself in John 15. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read it for you. John 15, this is what Jesus says. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Christ-like love is the greatest sign of spirituality. That is what spirituality is. It's Christ-like love. It's sacrificial love. It's thinking about, your, thinking about yourself more is actually making the problem worse. When people say, I'm just going to spend time you know, figuring myself out, that's a vain pursuit. Because you are the problem in the first place. So you're going to spend more time with yourself. You're going to look deeper inside. You're just getting deeper in the problem at that point. And this is interesting about what Jesus says here when he says, greater love has no one than this. Uh, in the Greek, that term greater is basically a measure of intensity. And Jesus is saying, the most intense form of love that you could offer, that you could operate in, is sacrifice. To lay down your life for one's friend. It's a matter of intensity. And this is what Christian love is. You talk about another word that's been hijacked, distorted, and used for all manner of things, from loving tacos to justifying sin. Love, Christian love, is intensely focused on what it can do for those around. It's a matter of intensity. It's not just I might do it. It's an intense desire to serve the people around you with what God has given you. Christian love is intense. It's passionate and it desires to sacrifice. Paul is saying that that's spirituality. That's what spirituality really looks like. You know, here at Access Church, one of our core values is that servanthood is our platform. We do not seek a platform to be popular. We don't seek a platform to be liked by people. We seek for people to see what Jesus said they should see. You will be known by your love. That's what he told his disciples. The world will know that you are my disciples because of your love for one another. That's the platform that we seek. If people are going to know anything about us, if they're going to see us doing anything, it should be seeing us loving one another. That's the platform that we seek. Paul then makes a, a list 
he goes on to give a list of ways that love looks like in action, what spirituality really looks like. And this list of things is actually a collective rebuttal to the way that they have been behaving, starting all the way from chapter 1 in the book of, uh, of Corinthians. And Paul is saying, we've gotten up now to, to chapter 13, and he's saying, in light of everything that I've said about what you are, you're doing wrong, because the Corinthians church, they were pretty messed up. Like they were doing some, some wild stuff. At one point, they were doing something so bad that Paul said, I don't think pagans would even affirm that. That's bad. If the world knows better than the church, that's what they were, they were doing. So Paul is saying, given everything I've pointed out, that, that you have going wrong in your church, he then lists out this, this list of what love looks like, and it all correlates to things he had already pointed out about their behavior before this. Starting in verse 4 through 7, it says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Do you feel like you're at a wedding yet? It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, I want to highlight one thing as he says in verse 5. He says, it does not dishonor. It does not dishonor. This was directly correlated to what Paul points out just in the chapter before this, in chapter 12, when he says that they were essentially trying to cut other people off from the body of Christ. For whatever reason it was, uh, Paul uses the metaphor of, of the body, and I'm going to distort what body parts he uses, but he says the, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the foot cannot say to the torso, I don't need you. Well, why would someone say, I don't need you? Why would someone be led to feel like they could just cut something off? Why? Because they feel like it's not useful, like it's not serving a purpose. It's essentially just saying, you're the weakest link, and if we get rid of you, we'll be better off. That's what it is. It's the weakest link mentality. In, in essence, what Paul is saying is, he's saying you are actually dishonoring somebody when you treat them this way. You're dishonoring them when you see them as the weakest link, as, as a cinder block that's dragging the whole thing down. And if we just didn't have you, we'd be better off. Write this one down and put it on a bumper sticker. There are no weakest links in the body of Christ. There are no weakest links in the body of Christ. This is such a worldly thought process, which is if we just cut off the weakest link, that we will be better off. You see, the world, it sees strength in terms of removing things. That's how we become stronger is by removing things. That's how every sports team is, is built around. It's all about making the cut. Well, what's the cut? The cut is about removing all the weakest links below it. You, that's how we become stronger is by removing all of the weakest links. But you know, in the body of Christ, it's completely different than that. In the body of Christ, we operate in sacrificial love. It's not about removing the weakest link. It's actually about strengthening those who are weak among us. It's not a removal process. It's a serving process where we strengthen them and lift them up. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is, look at this key word, honored, every part rejoices with it. 
Paul uses that phrase, suffers with. He only uses it two times in the whole New Testament. Paul's the only one that used it. He uses it right here in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. And check this out. He uses it in Romans 8, 17. Look at what he says in Romans 8, 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We do not get to choose the parts of Christ's life that we identify with or that we walk out. Paul is saying if you want Christ, you got to get the whole package. That means you get the sufferings as well as the glory. Many of us just want the glory, but he's saying you have to take both. And in the body of Christ, it works the same way. We do not get to just eliminate people and lop them off the body of Christ saying this is how we're going to advance and get stronger. No, as the body of Christ, we take everybody, weak and strong, and we serve one another. We pick one another up. There is no such thing as a weakest link in the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. I think about even this week, our, our brother Jim has not been doing good. He's been uh, weak and, and, and not feeling good. And I love, you know, Susan, this morning and all of us, the Holy Spirit was so far ahead. I never told anybody what I was preaching on today, but we were so far ahead of it in prayer. We were already talking about how we've come together and how we've made up for Jim not being here. We've filled in his spot, right? We've done the things that he would do when, he's, when, when he would be here. We've been praying for him. We've been lifting him up because right now he's someone who's suffering among us. And the answer is not to get rid of, it's to lift up and to strengthen, right? We're already doing it here in the body of Christ. As I mentioned, Paul, he likens our relationship with each other to our relationship with Jesus. We don't just get to pick and choose the parts of Jesus' life that we want to conform to. We must experience his suffering just like we want to experience his glory. But as Paul begins to transition out of his argument for why love is necessary, he brings it back to spiritual gifts in chapter 14. And he says to follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit. As I mentioned, Paul does not toss out the gifts of the Spirit because they are good and they are of God. He just corrected their motive behind the gifts. And now that he believes he's done this, that he's made it clear, he tells them to run after the gifts of the Spirit. But with one caveat, he says, prioritize prophecy. Very interesting. Why does he say prioritize prophecy? Is he saying this one's better than all the rest of the gifts? No, this is actually a contextual thing that's happening here. And he's saying, in your situation, you guys need to prioritize prophecy because... It's the most beneficial thing. It's the most beneficial thing for the body of Christ right now. Uh, just a quick thing that God has trained me in doing, and, and it's been a very helpful practice for me. I remember one time I was praying, and I don't remember what I was praying for, but I know I, I was asking God for something. And his response to me was, he said, How will you having this advance my kingdom? And it, it caused me to pause for a second because I had to think through, oh, that's a good question. If I'm asking you for something, what is it going to do for your kingdom? How is it going to serve you in your kingdom? How is it going to glorify you in my life? And it took me a second to think that through. And it really changed the way that I prayed about things from that moment forward. If I'm going to ask God for something, I should really understand how it fits into his will. 
You know, if a kid comes up to you and asks to borrow a, a table saw or some kind of piece of heavy equipment or machinery, you probably want to stop and ask, what are you going to use this for? What's the purpose behind this? And the same is true for us when we are seeking the gifts of the Spirit, which Paul says is a good thing, that we should desire them. He even says in some translations we should lust after the gifts of the Spirit because lust in and of itself is not a problem. It's only a problem when it gets redirected in the wrong direction. But lust is just an intense desire for something. He says lust after the gifts of the Spirit. But we should understand and be able to articulate to God why it's necessary for us to have those gifts. If you're going to ask God for prophecy, you should understand why it's necessary. And you know why it's necessary? Because Paul says it's to serve others around you. That's the purpose of the gifts. If you can't give a response that has to do with serving others, that means you want it for the wrong reason. Desire the gifts of the Spirit to serve one another with them. It's so simple. It's so simple. Paul says in 14.1, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. The reason he put especially prophecy in there is because he wanted them to start to think in terms of what is the most beneficial for the people around me. It's not that the other gifts were lesser, but he needed them to learn you operate in the gifts from a place of love, and love is always focused outward. That is what powers the gifts of the Spirit. He then goes on to say in in, in verse 12, just really concluding what his point was, he says, since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. Put your time and your effort into the gifts that are going to build up the people around you. You know, I've mentioned this in this series already, Jesus operated in every gift of the Spirit, every office. He was all of it, evangelist, prophet, miracle worker, all of it. You know what Jesus did? He always operated from a place of love. He could not violate his own nature, which is love. Everything he did, every person he healed, every time he spoke truth, every prophecy he gave, he did it from a place of love. So why should it be any different for us? We are to be used by God like God. We're used by God in the same attitude that God operates in, which is love.